this prequel episode, we've got our I Am Legend fan poll follow-up. We're learning about lesbian literature and previewing The Handmaid. Hello and welcome back to This Fellow Lives Podcast, where we talk about movies that are based on books. It's a prequel episode. It's a huge prequel episode. We have so much to talk about, so much fan reaction, a learning things segment, and uh, fun facts about the So much, so much. We're just going to get right into it with our patron shout-outs. We have two new patrons. Well, one new patron and one returning patron on this week's episode. At the $5 level, we have a Hugo Award winner coming on, and that is Jess. So thank you, Jess, for signing up for $5 a month, getting access to our bonus content, including a new episode of our bonus con- content that will be coming out. Maybe the day you're hearing this, the day after, within a day or two of you hearing this, we're discussing Lilo and Stitch. Uh, we're recording that right after this, and that episode will be out shortly, so look out for that on Patreon. And we have a returning patron at the $15 Academy Award winning level. They supported us for quite a while, dropped off for a little bit, but they are back again. And that is Genre Fluid Short Novelette. And I believe this is our name change patron. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're back. And this, I believe, was their request. I Am Legend? No. no. Yeah, I Am Legend. That's what was, I mean. Uh, I Am yeah. Legend was their request. So yes. they jumped back on uh, just in time for I Am Legend. And we appreciate that. And our Academy Award winners, our recurring top patrons are Paul. Kat Ensminger, Ben Wilcox, Ian from Wine Country, Genre Fluid Short Novelette, Winchester's Forever, Kelly Napier, Gray Hightower, Eli Young's Gratch, Just Gratch, Shelby says, more horror, please. Just going through every genre there, Shelby. <laughs> just pit, just <laughs> every genre. Uh, v Frank and Alina Starkov. Thank you all so very much for supporting us. Uh, you are just all incredible, and we appreciate it very much. Katie, there was an un an unbelievable amount of of fan reaction uh, to to I I was not expecting no the amount of I, feedback. I, I kind of want to call it unprecedented. An unprecedented amount of feedback on <laughs> I Am Legend. So we're gonna get to our fan poll follow up for I Am Legend. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. On Patreon, we had six votes for the book and two for the movie. Lost Remote Control said, book wins for me. If the alternate ending had made it to everyone, maybe it would be closer. But the exploration of becoming the legendary big bad was mind blowing for teenage me when I read this the first time. This is going to become a recurring theme about the ending. So just <laughs> yes. not that that was a surprise necessarily, but that. Uh, yeah, strap in for that. Yeah. V. Frank said, book vote here. I read the book when I was in high school, and I remember crying at the death of the dog even then. By the time I saw the movie in 2007, I had managed to forget that the dog dies, only to remember right in the middle of the movie what was going to happen. And then I managed to forget about it again until I heard the scene we will have to help Katie through. Screw that movie, LOL. Keep it in the book. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Um, With a a different opinion, a genre-fluid short novelette. The requester of Yes, the requester of this uh, film-slash-book said, I have ranted for hours about the theatrical versus alternate versus book ending of I Am Legend, so I'll try to keep it brief. 
For me, the theatrical ending ruins the entire point and messaging of the movie and turns it into good guy kills a bunch of monsters, finds the cure, they all live happily ever after, really dumbed down surface level thing. Uh, 100% agree. 100%, yes. yes. Because of that, I would choose the book. However, with the alternate movie ending, it tells the story far more effectively. For the book, this is what I submit for the sci-fi versus fantasy debate. It takes a completely fantasy premise of vampires and speculates about them in a very scientific way. I really like that premise. It reminds me of The Martian with the main character alone working through various problems and analyzing them scientifically to come up with solutions. So I loved the book. However, I think the movie tells the same story far more effectively. Movie Dr. Neville's PTSD flashbacks, his deteriorating mental state, his isolation and desperation are all far more emotional, evocative, and interesting than book Neville, who seems less affected by his circumstances and more shallow as a character. I would agree with that. I was going to say, just based on what you you described, having not read the book, just from what you described in our conversation, I got a similar vibe. So. Another thing the movie does much better, in my opinion, is making the creatures more monstrous and threatening. Ignoring the action-y aspect of it being a movie, I think it really sells the idea that these are mindless, scary monsters while increasingly dropping hints that it may not be the case. Book Neville experiences them actually speaking English and shouting at him, even shouting basic conversations with his infected neighbors from his doorway. Then he completely dismisses them as monsters and goes around breaking into their houses and staking them while they sleep like a psychopath. That does seem like a slight contradict, like a slight dissonance there between, you know, yeah, in the book, mm-hmm. if they are having conversations, even if he's dismissing those conversations, it, it seems like he has to be he he he's like dismissing an awful lot about yeah. Them and that was one to... of the things that made the book hard to parse for me. I wasn't sure how we were meant to interpret interpret it. Yeah, and now I think there is something there in that the, uh, in that in that in sort of the idea of it was it seemed like the book makes it so obvious that they are somehow conscious you know sentient Mm -hmm. conscious whatever and he still doesn't see them that way i think there's an added layer of sort of impact there in in driving home the point of othering and of you know Mm -hmm. despite the fact that he has all of this evidence that they are not in fact mindless killing machines he still sort of sees them that way yeah like that that's an interesting idea um, because, you know, translating it into the, the, the sort of metaphor that it is under the real world and othering of, of, you know, people like in the real world, you know, other races, other religions, other whatever, pick your, your other group that people that, that cause strife and turmoil between groups of people. They it's very clear to everybody involved that the other people on the other side of that conflict are pe- they're humans, you know, yeah. and but we still, despite that find ways to dehumanize them. Yes. And and I think that is kind of maybe what the book is going for, that despite all the evidence that these are just basically other people, kind of maybe Mm -hmm. slightly different other people, he still is, it doesn't see it until the end when it becomes clear to him that he has become the monster. You know what I mean? Yeah. I I think that could be a valid reading of it. But that being, yeah, which is interesting. That being said, I can also see the argument that it makes it a little muddled and confusing when you're reading it. And also it's, 
um, maybe a better twist for the audience the way the movie does it. Yeah. Of having them appear more monstrous to him while having some small hints. Mm-hmm. Anyways, I would like get back to it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's find my place. The movie version makes it far more believable that Neville would reasonably conclude that they are just mindless monsters and then ultimately subverts that, making the point about him being the real monster more impactful. The movie did a few thing, a few more things really well that the book didn't address. The depiction of human civilization being retaken by nature was both visually stunning and helped create a more immersive setting. It helped convey the state of the world and show that it was continuing on without us. Moving the setting from the suburbs to the middle of a major city was an excellent choice. A great addition was showing a bored, lonely man just doing crazy fun things because it's the end of the world, and why not? Yep. Racing through the abandoned streets in a Mustang, shooting an assault <laughs> rifle at deer out the window. Why not? Sure. Hitting golf balls off an aircraft carrier or fishing in a koi pond. Who's going to stop me? Watching all the movies in a video store. I got to do something while the vampire creatures are out and about. All great additions to Neville's character and the setting. As far as I remember, book Neville just drank and skulked. I would also agree with that. (laughs) Uh, This is already a really long post, so just to wrap up, I think the movie was absolutely better than the book, unless you've only seen the theatrical ending, in which case I reject your reality and substitute my own. There you go. And Jess, our and brand, I, do, our, I just want to make I appreciate the Adam uh, Savage reference there. Just for <laughs> I just wanted you to know I got it. I see you, genre fluid and short novelette. Anyways, um, and brand new patron Jess said I didn't read the book and I couldn't bring myself to watch the movie again on this one either. I watched it in theaters when it came out. Like you, Katie, my childhood dog was also a German Shepherd, and she was in her senior years when this film came out. So was mine, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, needless to say, it wrecked me. <laughs> Thank you, Brian, for doing Katie this kindness by avoiding that part <laughs> for her. I wish someone was able to do that for me. Mm-hmm. I think this movie absolutely could use a... <laughs> it's one of those ones that needs like a... Uh, it would be nice and it was in the time early enough where there wasn't i mean it was definitely within the time of the internet we were all on myspace and whatnot at the time but it wasn't in the time where it was very easy to go out and find out like go on twitter and be like oh by the way if you're going to see the new yeah (laughs) movie uh something horrible happens to a dog halfway through just a warning you know what i mean yeah like you you would have no idea going in like because the only thing you would get really uh, at the time, other if you went looking very specifically on the internet, would be like you know the rating or whatever, which yeah. would just say like thematic and scary sequences or something like that, which would not really be helpful. And similar to uh, the ending, the the dog is also a recurring theme throughout this feedback. Yes, uh, nobody likes that scene. No, of course, wow. <laughs> nobody, what? nobody wants it. No. I like I said I I I understand how effective of a scene is but of a scene it is but it's just so awful it's just so awful Well I I do I do agree with you I think it's effective I think I think for most people it just goes a little too far though Yeah like it's just it's just too much It's it's it is, too, it is that's I think that's the big thing it's just too much for for what it's getting across. I think you can get across the same dev like you can get across the depths that he has sunk to in this following that event. Mm-hmm. Um I mean even just what we watched where where the dog is injured and he picks it up and carries it back to his car is already 
yeah doing the work that you need yeah you don't need to then yes. go on and spend I, five I minutes watching him have, strangle the dog yeah, to they death. could like, have crafted an effective scene without going as far as they did yeah i i would i would tend to agree with that yeah on facebook we had five votes for the book and three for the movie Christian said, I was very disappointed to find out there were no wild E. Coyote traps in the book, no spring-loaded boxing gloves, no dynamite, and not even a falling anvil. Wildly disappointed. None of that stuff. Joanna said, oh, they're both quite good. I think I'll choose the book because I remember it better than the movie, and as I try to remember the movie, every scene I think of was actually from either The Last Man on Earth or The Omega Man. So I Am Legend was obviously a bit forgettable, hmm. uh, especially up against these wild rides. Interesting. And I've never seen either of those other two, no. so I can't weigh in on that. I did read the synopsis for The Last Man on Earth, and it sounds much closer to the book. Yeah. I have not read the synopsis for Mega Man. I believe it's also closer to the book. But uh, Last Man on Earth, a lot of it sounded very close. I think the ending was still pretty different from mm -hmm. my memory of what I read of like the synopsis. And I was like, well, that's not the ending that Katie said happened in the book. But... Um, it is closer in a lot of yeah. ways. Uh, Matthew said, even though the book had that whole subplot about Lucy the Bridesmaid and her affair with the Dr. Vampire, which is a callback to our Godfather episode, as well as possibly being a reference to Dracula. Oh, okay. I was confused kind of, by that comment. It kind of I, works both yes, ways. Yes. Uh, Stephen said... The Will Smith movie was great, but none of the movies really capture the moment of realization in the book that the character was the bad guy all along. That punch was what made the story so impactful and why the book still outdoes the movie. Yeah. It really is wild to, ch I mean, we talked about it. Just to, again, reiterate, it's so wild because it's such, it, it, it it's Twilight Zone. It's, yeah. it's, it's such a, it's such a popular type of storytelling already anyways. It's so weird to me that the, and it, my only thought is that they're like, well, we can't have Will Smith end up being the bad guy. He's Will Smith. <laughs> People won't, audiences won't like that. And whatever test audience they showed it to. Yeah. Didn't like didn't it. Didn't like it. <laughs> so. Apparently. Anthony said, my vote is for the book as I did not like this film at all. I really liked Will Smith at the time, but was disappointed with this adaptation. His character's growing loneliness was touching, but the action schlock and zombie tropes were too much. The theatrical ending was just garbage. When the gates opened to soldiers on each side of a perfectly framed church with the sun behind it, made me want to rest. I didn't even notice the church part, but that does make yeah. sense with the rest of the sort of uh, what's going on in yeah. the film. Um, military theocracy will save humanity mm. in our time of strife was what I got out of that ending. Yeah, it, it's not particularly subtle visual no. symbolism. No. On Twitter, we had 11 votes for the book, three for the movie, and two listeners who couldn't decide between the two. Matt Nelson, guy who draws stuff, said... Guy what draws stuff? Guy, guy what draws stuff. Matt Nelson, guy what draws stuff, said... Book is better. Aside from the movie's utterly botched ending, it completely misses the tone of the book, which is a horror story. Del Toro would be an excellent choice to remake. Perhaps also Alex Garland, who did Annihilation. I think that's a brilliant. I yeah, think Alex. Is, I, I think honestly, Alex Garland might make more sense. I would love to see Guillermo del Toro's version, just because again, I think it would be wild. It would be really cool. But I think. Doing a version very similar to this Will Smith version 
but with Alex Garland writing and directing, or at least having a lot of influence on the script and directing, because so many of his films are about humanity and the the, the mm-hmm. monstrosity that is like that that human like i mean this is like ex machina, I mean, yeah, ex, is, ex machina is all about yeah. asking the question who is the bad guy who's here? the bad guy here who has more humanity? who has more humanity like that is a, right in his wheelhouse we have not seen it we will do annihilation at some point on the at one point we had it on the list and then it got bumped yeah, it back got for, bumped something. for something i can't remember I why remember. Maybe the book didn't come in, or I don't remember. But we Annihilation is on the list for us to do. But I 100% agree that I think um, Alex Garland would be fantastic. Kelly Napier said, I've never seen the movie, and I never will, because <laughs> I know about that one scene. There you go. Kudos to you for skipping it on Katie's behalf, by the way. That's some negativity I don't need to introduce into my life. <laughs> Thank you very much. Fair enough. Forever Alone Cooking said... I was so disappointed with how the Will Smith movie ended. I don't think any of the movie adaptations live up to the book, but that one is clearly the worst. Yep, just hitting it, hitting it home. People just really hated this ending and really wanted to to weigh in on how much they hated the (laughs) ending of the movie. Shelby Suderman said, I'm torn on this one because the book is a zombie story about vampires, while the movie is a zombie story where the mannequins are the scariest part. So neither of these satiated the zombie mood I've been in lately. I understand the alternate ending is closer to the book's ending, but I personally had a much darker read on the book, where not even a nuclear holocaust that turns everyone into zompires will stop humanity from evolving and reasserting their will over the planet with violence. That's an interesting reading. It's not what I think I would get out of it, but I do. that is a very interesting reading, because, I mean, you can see that, because, you know, we talked about it length, especially in this movie, um, with the imagery of of nature and earth reclaiming, you know, mm-hmm. the world. Uh, and then, but the story being that, oh, the, this zombie version of humans is still going to come back and reassert it. That, yeah. Interesting, yeah. There's a scene at the end where the living ones just mow down all the undead zompires, and it's just brushed off as that's how civilization does it, that added an extra level of bleak to the book's ending for me. I'm not sure I've ever read an apocalypse story where humanity will adapt felt like a terrible thing. Nothing the movie did could hold Hmm. a candle to that. I won't dignify the theatrical (laughs) ending, but in the alternate ending, the alpha zombie does smear the image of a butterfly on the glass, which we didn't see. The the one that we watched, I think, must have started like right before that. Yeah, because the one we watched, the glass is broken and you see the butterfly, but we don't see him. Again, we watched a clip, a five minute clip of it on YouTube. Yeah, it was the only one I was able to find. But that makes more sense. Yeah, that makes way more sense. Way more sense. Um. Which makes so much more sense than the glass randomly breaking that way. There's things I liked in both and things I didn't. If we discount the theatrical ending, I think we've reached a draw. Which I think it's totally fair to discount the theatrical ending. If you can get the the director's cut, basically, or whatever. Because it was... I I definitely think it's worth judging the film based on... Or at least giving it the benefit of the doubt and judging it based on the, you know, the director and everybody involved other than some studio assholes Mm -hmm. input, um, getting the actual intention for the piece as opposed Mm -hmm. to what it ended up being because one test audience and one studio exec panicked or whatever, you know what I mean? Like that's, 
so I think it's fair to to judge it based on the the um, the alternate ending. On Instagram, we had eight votes for the book and two for the movie. The Leap seventy seven said, "I'm going to defend the movie on this one." With the, <laughs> with the predication that I did not like the theatrical ending. Go. I found filmmaking in the early years of the post-9-11 attacks to be a fascinating time. V for Vendetta, The Proposition, 28, 28 Weeks Later, Blindness, Children of Men, The Road, the Funny Games Remake, No Country for Old Men, and There Will Be Blood were just a few examples during this time where filmmakers took the chance and said, what if the happy ending is still not happy? I will admit that original ending turned me off, but the three quarters of the film before that are some pretty high-grade filmmaking. Will Smith's reactions to the little things were perfect, like the mannequin world he created or getting angry when food he was saving was being eaten. And Samantha's death, yeesh, that was horrible as it reminded me of the day I had to put down my own childhood dog and make my first official adult decision. I wish some things were done differently and the original ending became canon like Ridley Scott's director cut ending of Blade Runner, but it is what it is. I like the book and have seen the other movie versions of the book as well and feel this book might be due for another interpretation. So I agree. It's definitely due for another interpretation. I also agree that it's really dumb that like on Netflix that they haven't just made yeah the 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 original ending yeah. the the official like when we release this on streaming that's the ending that's was wild the, was the, uh, it was francis lawrence that did yeah this. so release the lawrence cut yeah the lawrence come on <laughs> all right guys all uh, you know hundreds of our, our listeners get out there on twitter hashtag release the lawrence cut of i am legend uh at tweet that at netflix they probably have the, the ability to make that happen they own the rights to the film right now or at least to distribute it um <laughs> we need the lawrence cut um because yeah i do think like like the leap said here that uh, as much as i don't enjoy the movie mm-hmm. necessarily and for me a big part of that two big things to that one i had seen it already so i already knew like it wasn't a new experience i think the first time you watch it it can be a powerful interesting really good experience and then you're like i'm good now i got it so i already <laughs> seen it once so like yeah uh, but on top of that i think in a post-covid you know mm-hmm. in in our in the world we live in now it's just not quite sort of the not escapist but like fun dystopian any kind of yeah it, any it kind of like post-apocalypse uh yeah. pandemic story just hits different it hits now. different and it, it can still does. be good and done really well and 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 i can still watch and enjoy them depending on how they're handled but like this one that really does wallow in the misery i think requires it, it's tough to watch mm-hmm. currently whereas it was it, it, watching it pre-covid is a little bit of a different experience but because i do the point being i do think like like you said will smith's performance is and we mentioned it is just it's fantastic it's yeah. great um, and a lot of a lot of the story up until the very end is really well done, even if I don't want to watch it because yeah. <laughs> it's like. <laughs> so our overall uh, listener polls winner was the book with 30 votes to the movie's 10 um, plus our two undecided listeners. There you go. So the book won. But I would have been interested to see if we had watched the Lawrence cut. <laughs> those numbers might have, if we were comparing, you know, maybe, apples to apples, perhaps. maybe those numbers would have been a little closer. Perhaps. 
All right, that's it for our fan follow-up. Thank you all so much. That was actually a ton of fun. Lots of good reaction, lots of good feedback. So many people had had a lot to say about that one. Again, we didn't anticipate it, but really enjoyed it. Uh, so uh, thank you for that. Katie, it's time now to learn a little bit about lesbian literature. No matter what anybody tells you, words and ideas can change the world. Let's go. Let's do it. <laughs> Uh, lesbian literature is a sub-genre of literature that addresses lesbian themes and or features lesbian characters uh, that encompasses fiction, poetry, plays, nonfiction, uh, fiction of any genre, basically anything you can think of as long as there are lesbian themes and or characters there in it. There you go. So the fundamental work of lesbian literature is... Just real quick. When you say as long as there are lesbian themes or characters and they are a focal point probably would be the yeah. addendum. Like, because there's yeah. plenty of things that have, you know, yes. lesbians in it that I wouldn't think would qualify as lesbian literature. Yes. Right. No, okay. Yeah, you're correct. Yeah, okay. Um, so the fundamental work of lesbian literature is obviously the poetry of Sappho of Lesbos, uh, from whom we get the word lesbian as well as the word sapphic. There you go. Um, and side addendum here before we really dive in, um, even though I'm referring to this segment as lesbian literature because that's the name of the genre, moving forward, I am going to use the word sapphic more frequently in this segment because it is a generally more inclusive umbrella term that encompasses a wider variety of female identifying people who experience attraction to other female identifying people, some type of attraction, um, whether that's sexual, romantic, et cetera, um, be that lesbian, bi, pan, um, and FYI, just to make myself perfectly clear, sapphic trans women, I am absolutely including you under this happy little umbrella. So anyway, Sappho. Uh, not much of Sappho's poetry remains, um, but that what, what we do have um, is a good demonstration of the topics that she wrote about. She wrote about women's daily lives, their relationships, their rituals. A lot of what we have focuses on the beauty of women um, and proclaims her love for women. Uh, I tried really hard to keep this segment brief since we had so much <laughs> feedback. I don't know if I succeeded, uh, but I'm basically just going to give a quick timeline starting in the least expected place the European Middle Ages. Uh, so the European Middle Ages lacked a specific term for lesbians, which I think we've talked about on here before in regards to other things. That's one of the one of the things that makes it difficult to discuss like LGBTQ um, representation right. in older literature. The fact that they didn't have specific terms for those things, yeah. um, but. Medieval French texts, which were heavily influenced by Arabic literature of the period, did feature literary depictions of love and sexual desire between women, um, including in devotionals to the Virgin Mary, um, as well as in the writings of female Christian mystics of it the time. It would be the French. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, fast forwarding, uh, in the early 19th century, uh, Chinese poet Wu Zhao 
I think, uh, gained popularity for her lesbian love poems. Um, her songs, according to poet Kenneth Rexroth, were sung all over China. Hmm. That's a quote that I love. Sung all, <laughs> sung over, all China. over China. Uh, around the same time, the sapphic genre in Europe started to evolve and gain more traction um, in the English-speaking world. Um, so you had writers like Vernon Lee, who included sapphic subtexts in her work, um, and her lover, Amy Levy, who wrote love poems to women using the voice of a heterosexual man. Um, and of course, also out of this time period, you also have Diarist and Lister. And Lister, <laughs> which if you haven't, go check out, uh, what is it called? Gentleman Jack. Gentleman Jack on HBO. They're, I think the second season's coming before too long. Wasn't it the third season? Third, no. I thought there were already two seasons. I thought that. we only watched the first season. I Anyways, have no idea. <laughs> another season is coming at some point. I thought there was only one season. but I know great, there's another season yeah, coming. Yeah, another season but... coming, whether it was one or two. I thought there was only one, but uh, great, great show yeah, on HBO. Very good. Uh, now, naturally, a lot of literature out of this time period that we might consider sapphic is subtextual. So we can apply a sapphic or a queer lens to it, but those themes are usually not like surface level, right? You're not going to find a lot of explicitly labeled like sapphic themes and sapphic characters. Mm -hmm. um, but a few well-known authors commonly considered part of the sapphic genre that fall into this category and time period are Kate Chopin, uh, Christina Rossetti, Charlotte Bronte, and Emily Dickinson. Um, there's a lot of uh, speculation that Emily Dickinson was in love with her sister-in-law. Oh. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if that's explored in the show. I have wanted it to kind watch of, that show. I, I do want to watch that. It kind of seems like it is. Apple TV or whatever. Based <laughs> Isn't on that like, Apple TV, I think? Yeah, it's Apple yeah. TV. Based on like what I have seen of that yeah. show, it seems like they do explore that. Um, but we haven't watched that one yet. Yeah. I could be easily swayed if you want to recommend it to me. No, I mean, I want to watch it. I just, we don't have Apple TV I was yet. I was speaking to the listeners. Oh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, moving into the 20th century, we begin to see more directly sapphic themes as well as more directly sapphic creators, such as novelist Radcliffe Hall, poet Elsa Gidlow, um, Japanese writer Nobuko Yoshia, mm -hmm. um, right. and even more well-known examples like Amy Lowell, uh, Virginia Woolf, Vita Sackville-West, and Gertrude Stein. Um, in the latter half of the 20th century, sapphic fiction in English saw a huge explosion in interest with the advent of the dime store or the pulp fiction novel, um, and it ended up becoming its own distinct category of fiction in the 1950s and 60s, although in this time period, a significant number of authors of this genre were men. As to be expected. Uh, we like to ruin everything, <laughs> so. <laughs> you are real good at it. 1952's The Price of Salt by Patricia Highsmith is considered the first lesbian novel with a happy ending. Wow. <laughs> Till the 50s before we got a happy ending. Huh? Uh, it was groundbreaking for being the first where neither of the two women had a nervous breakdown, die <laughs> tragically, face a lonely and desolate future, commit suicide, or return to being with a man. Um, and just to demonstrate a double standard that's still lingering around, uh, in the 1950s, parts of French author Violette Dulac's novel Ravages were censored because they contained explicit lesbian passages. Wow. But 
Jane Rule's 1964 novel, Desert of the Heart, was turned down several times before publication, with one publisher telling Rule, quote, if this book isn't pornographic, what's the point of printing it? If you can write in the dirty parts, we'll take it, but otherwise, <laughs> no. Okay. <laughs> Uh, following the second-waved feminism movement of the late 60s and early 70s, we saw the development of a more politicized voice in sapphic literature, as well as growing mainstream acceptance of sapphic-themed works. Uh, we also began to see more sapphic writers of color begin to be present represented. Um, some heavyweights from this era include Rita Mae Brown, Audre Lorde, Alice Walker, Joanna Russ, and Jewel Gomez, to name just a few there's a massive list yeah, from this yeah. era, <laughs> yeah. um, but I could not list all of them. We'd be here all night. In the 1980s and 90s, sapphic literature diversified more into genre literature. Um, so you had your fantasy, your mystery, your science fiction, uh, romance, graphic novels, and young adult literature as well. Mm -hmm. uh, major strides were actually made in the young adult genre in the 80s and 90s. In 1982, Nancy Garden's Annie on My Mind broke barriers as it was published in hardback and by a major press. So that was a big deal at the time. Huh. Like it was published, quote unquote, right. legitimately. Like legit published. Yeah. Uh, the book also depicts homosexuality as something permanent to be explored and not something to be fixed. Hmm. Uh, currently, it is much easier to find sapphic literature than it has been in the past. Understatement of the century. <laughs> um, however, uh, there are fewer books about female homosexuality than male homosexuality, and even fewer books about bi or pansexuality. Um, and while things have gotten better, sapphic books with non-white characters are still more difficult to find than their white counterparts. Yeah. So we have some good and we have some bad. Yeah. And it's definitely one of those things, I, you know, when you said it's easier to find, um, I think one of the big spaces that has been a, and you didn't go into it here because it's obviously, it's a whole different thing, but avenues like fan fiction and yes, stuff like absolutely. that are obviously a huge Yes, <laughs> um, and especially of, with how, like, relatively easy it is to self-publish now, yeah, and self as opposed yeah. to in the past, you get a much wider variety of representation. Yep. Very, very interesting. All right. So let's learn a little bit now about a piece of lesbian literature, Fingersmith by Sarah Waters. Fingersmith is a 2002 historical crime novel set in Victoria-era Britain. Keep that in mind because that will change for the movie. Yes, yes it will. <laughs> Uh, the author Sarah Waters is known for writing lesbian fiction, and she is a lesbian herself. Uh, the book is notable for its eroticism, as well as its depictions of pornography. Uh, reviewers have praised Waters' negotiation of sexual themes. One review from The Guardian described it as, quote, erotic and unnerving. <laughs> nice. <laughs> While The New York Times praised its, quote, illicit undertow. <laughs> erotic and unnerving is... <laughs> 
(laughs) two of my most favorite things. There you go. Uh, Waters uses her depiction of lesbian love between main characters Maud and Sue to challenge a variety of heteropatriarchal norms, as well as to respond to different feminist arguments about pornography. The novel's title is likely intended to reflect the erotic themes of the novel. Fingersmith is an archaic term for a petty thief, but obviously given the context, it can also be assumed to have intentionally sexual connotations. I was wondering because I didn't know what, like the name, I was like, I, you know, I didn't yeah. know what that term meant in terms of like what the historic, I assumed yeah, it was like, some sort like of historical thing. Fingersmith. That, and that makes sense, but I was like, because to but me it, but it, it seems also, like it's about it a very specific thing. It sounds kind of sexual. Yes, no, it but sounds actually, very specifically. her other like most well-known novel, the title of that one is maybe the most sapphic title of a book I've ever heard in my life. It's called Tipping the Velvet. Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Uh, but Fingersmith was uh, shortlisted for the Orange Prize and the Man Booker Prize, and it won the CWA Historical Dagger for Historical Crime Fiction. So that's wow. pretty cool. Um, and in addition to the 2016 adaptation that we will be discussing, the novel has also been adapted as a two-part BBC television miniseries in 2005 and as a stage show in 2015. There you go. All right, let's learn now a little bit more about the film, The Handmaiden. Handmaiden is a 2016 film directed by, before I get into this, everybody in this movie is Korean. I looked up a lot of pronunciations, couldn't find a lot more, did my best, I'm gonna butcher them, but I'm gonna try. <laughs> Park Chanuk, uh, Park Chanuk, and you don't pronounce the W from everything I was able to find. Every time I heard somebody say it, it was Park Chanuk, like one okay, word, okay. but who knows. Uh, who directed Old Boy, the 2003, the original Old Boy, mm. uh, Thirst, Stoker, um, Lady Vengeance, and Mr. Vengeance, some other vengeance. There's a trilogy, basically. Old Boy, Lady Vengeance, and they're not a trilogy, but they're a trilogy in the sense of, like, the Cornetto trilogy is a Uh, trilogy. That kind of deal, at least I think. I've not seen Old Boy. It's one on my list. Um, But also, he was a producer on Snowpiercer and on Um, the TV show of Snowpiercer. Oh, on both of them? Yeah, the the movie and the... Cool, cool, cool. Because, um, what's his name, did the movie... Mm -hmm. um, the, uh, Parasite. Oh, and yeah, that's right. He did Duh. the movie. It was a Korean film. Mm-hmm. A Korean and American, like, co-produced film. Uh, but he was a producer on it. Anyways. Um, and it was written by uh, Park Chanuk and uh, Se Kyung Jong, who is his writing partner. She's worked on most of his films. Uh, she co-wrote Thirst, I'm a Cyborg, but that's okay, Family Matters, and Lady Vengeance, among a handful of other things. But she works with Park Chanuk uh, specifically a lot. Is okay. Is is I'm a cyborg, but that's okay. The full title. That's the full title. I love that. Yes, that's the full title. <laughs> I'm a cyborg, but that's okay. Is the full title. 
The film stars Kim Min-hee, Kim Tyree, uh, Ha Jung-wo, Wu, uh, Cho Jing-woon, Kim Hae-suk, Moon So-ree, Madiv Trivedi, Lee Dong-wee, Lee Ji-ha, Jung Ha-dam, and Choi Byung-mo. And I guarantee I butchered every single one of those. Again, I looked up pronunciations. Could not find a lot of them, but what I tried. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> the film has a 95% on Rotten Tomatoes, an 84% on Metacritic, and an 8.1 on IMDb, which actually puts it at number 220 on the top 250 list. It won one BAFTA for non-English language film, and then it won another 70 awards and had another 108 nominations and film festivals and international film awards and all kinds. It won all kinds of awards all over the world, um, but wasn't actually nominated for any Oscars or anything like mm. that, which is interesting. Um, I'm not sure why, but yeah, it won a bunch of other stuff. Uh, the film made $38.6 million against a budget of $8.8 million, which is a mm -hmm. tiny budget. Not too shabby. Relatively tiny budget. Mm -hmm. So there's limited production information on Wikipedia. Uh, I did some researching. I found a fun, like, five-minute behind-the-scenes video, but didn't really have much useful information. It was mostly just people talking about, like, oh, yeah. mm -hmm. it was just, like, interviews. It, there wasn't much information. Uh, so most of, the, most of the stuff that I'm about to talk about comes from IMDb, so I can't confirm the veracity of this information. It seems is true-ish from uh, what I was able to discern, but it's, you know, who knows. So, as you mentioned, the book takes place in Victorian England. Mm. The film, though, takes place in 1930s Korea, which at the time was under Japanese colonial rule. And so the predominantly Korean cast of this film were all assigned Japanese teachers so that they could, because during the film, they would be speaking both Japanese and Korean throughout yeah. the film. So they all had, like, Japanese tutors to help study and um, learn Japanese to, to speak both in the film. Uh, and Kim min specifically... Uh, was apparently applauded by Japanese journalists at the after Cannes when this movie premiered at Cannes for her proficiency in Japanese, so mm. she was apparently very good at it. Uh, the Korean title for the film is Agassi, which apparently means the lady, and that title refers specifically to Lady Hideko mm -hmm. in the story, who is like the the higher class, whatever the yeah the like like no nobility the nobility or yeah. whatever. Um, while the English slash international title of the film, The Handmaiden, as we've been referring to it, uh, actually refers to Suki, who is her love interest, the, the yeah. second woman in, in the story. I don't know why this change was made. I could not find any information as to why in Korea it's titled after the lady and in the rest of the world it's titled after the mm. handmaiden. I don't know. I thought that was interesting. I wish I, I could have found maybe why they, they made that Maybe change. they just thought the handmaiden would be more memorable. That's my thought. That was my main thought was that mm -hmm. the main reason was the handmaiden is like a more intriguing title than yeah. the lady. But, yeah. <laughs> but anyways. So uh, Kim Tyree, who made her film uh, feature film debut in this movie, uh, she had been in a couple shorts but had never been in like a major motion picture up until this point was chosen from approximately 1,500 other women who auditioned for the role. And Park Chanuk reportedly uh, decided to cast her within 10 minutes of her audition starting. Uh, during that audition, Kim Tyree did not know uh, who would be playing Hideko, her, the other lead in the film. And after she had been cast, 
Park Chanuk uh, asked her who her favorite actress was, and she had answered that it was Kim Minnie. Uh, and this delighted him because he was then able to tell her that <laughs> Kim Minnie <laughs> was playing opposite her in the film. Um, and during, uh, so Kim Tyree went on to win uh, Best New Actress uh, Award at the Buell Film Festival. I don't know what that is, but I assume some, some big film festival somewhere. Um, and during her uh, acceptance speech at that award ceremony, she dedicated the award to Minnie, uh, whom she, quote, fell in love with at first sight. Aw, that's cute. Uh, so before filming, uh, Park uh, sent the, and I'm going to refer to him as Park occasionally throughout from here on. I, Korean names, Park, that's his last name. I th- yeah. Yes, I it is. Right. No, it is. Yeah. I looked that up for sure to make sure I knew. <laughs> the The surname or the family name comes first, and then the given name is the two names after that. Sometimes mm-hmm. one, usually two names uh, after that. He actually sent the completed script for the film to Sarah Waters, uh, for comments, because, you know, he's adapting her book. Mm-hmm. Um, and Waters said that she liked the script, but felt that it uh, was more appropriate to say that the film was, quote, inspired by the novel, as opposed to... Ooh, that intrigues <laughs> yeah. me. So I actually, I normally wouldn't put something like that in here. I put that in here specifically to prepare you. Okay. <laughs> for, to know going in that apparently there's a lot of changes, um, to, at least to some extent. Uh, so for the theatrical release of this film, Uh, I thought this was interesting. The subtitles uh, for the international release, the subtitles that are in English or whatever language you're watching in are actually color coded to differentiate between Japanese and Korean throughout the film. White subtitles were used for Korean while yellow subtitles were used for Japanese. I do not know if the version that we're going to end up watching does that or not. I hope it does. I hope it does. I'm sure the reason they did that is that that is important. Yes. Like culturally and politically. Culturally, politically and probably like specifically plot wise where there yeah. may be moments where some character's talking to somebody else and doesn't want somebody else to understand yeah. or something. Yeah. And you know what I mean? Like, and for us dumb, you know, American, we don't can't necessarily tell the difference between <laughs> Korean and Japanese very well. But like I said, I hope it does that. I don't know if it does or not. And um, we'll be watching or talking about where you can watch it here shortly. Uh, so during the actual writing of this script, uh, Park and his, uh, his co-writer uh, who I mentioned earlier, Sa Kyung Jung, uh, they actually would go seek the advice of one of, Ch- this is what IMDb says. It says one of Chung's friends. And now I don't know who Chung is because it's spelled, I don't know if that's like a tra- a weird translation of Kyung Jung, like one of those names into mm-hmm. Chung. I don't, I don't know because I literally copy pasted that sentence from IMDb because it confused me and there was no other reference to a Chung anywhere. So I don't, I don't know, but I'm guessing that that's maybe, Sa Kyung Jung, one of her friends, um, one of her best friends, who's actually a queer woman, and and they got advice from her on the sensibilities of queer women is the way that it was put on IMDb. So neither one of them are queer, as far as I know, at least Mm -hmm. as what it sounds like from this particular note that I found. But they did at least get some input on the script from people who were is what it sounds like. Um, And obviously they were basing it on the book right. a lot of the stuff was based on the book but so uh i thought this was kind of interesting they obviously had to change the names of our main characters when they translated it from <laughs> victorian england to a uh, colonial japanese uh korea um uh so lady hideko is actually named after a japanese actress hideko takanimi or takamini uh and suki is that is named after sue from the original version um they just kind of changed mm-hmm. sue into suki so this is this is the, getting into the nitty gritty here. 
For some of the love scenes between uh, the two female leads, the director actually took steps to ensure privacy and comfort for the actresses. Only a female, one female crew member holding the actual boom microphone was present during the filming. All other crew members were le left the set, and the scenes were filmed with a remote-controlled camera. No visitors were allowed near the set, and all male crew members had the day off, apparently. <laughs> um, and then the bathroom uh, set in Hideko's room was used as a resting area for the actresses to relax between takes. Uh, and also the, be uh, the the sex scenes were all shot during the very early stages of production as uh, Park thought that it would be stressful and burdensome. So they kind of got like, all of that stuff done early. Hmm, and then the rest of the shoot could be a little less, you know, they're not like anticipating like right. having to yeah. shoot this big, all these romance scenes later on down the road. So speaking of those sex scenes, the critical response to those sex scenes, according to Wikipedia, was mixed. I don't, this is two, they literally found, this Wikipedia had two different critics with <laughs> polarized opinions. I don't know what the, you know, consensus is. This is just two specific people. Laura Miller at Slate described the scenes as, quote, disappointingly boilerplate and featured, and featuring, quote, visual cliche, cliches of pornographic lesbianism, the actresses' bodies offered up for the camera's delectation, okay. end quote. So that's her opinion uh -huh. on the sex scenes in this movie. However, the New Yorkers, uh, Gia Tolentino said, quote, the women know what they look like. It seems they are consciously performing for each other. And Park is deft at extracting the particular sense of silly freedom that can be found in enacting a sexual cliche. End quote. So I'm not sure what to make of that. I, I'm not sure either. We <laughs> shall see. Uh, we shall see. Um, I, as far as I know, too, neither of the actresses, uh, the main actresses in this movie, identify as queer in any way. As far mm -hmm. as I know, I it sounded like from what I was reading that they both identify as straight, mm -hmm. is what it seemed like. Um, because there was talk about how they were both kind of like unsure about doing the role because of mm -hmm. that, uh, because of the, you know, the sex scenes, um, but ultimately went through with it. And, but again, I don't know for sure. That could be, that's just kind of the vibe I got from what I was able to find. So uh, my last note, and I thought this was interesting, just <laughs> speaking, of, I don't know. This is, I had to include this just because it was on IMDb and I feel like it came out of a Korean tabloid and I just <laughs> wanted to read it because it was so, the it feels like it's directly translated from a Korean tabloid. So I'm just going to read it verbatim of how I copied it from IMDb. During filming, due to the summer heat, Kim Tyree always brought a big bottle of beverage, either coffee, tea, or mineral water. She shared her drink with fellow actress Kim Min-hee, using the same straw she's using. Kim Min-hee said during her Aragong TV Showbiz Korea interview that Kim Tyree just placed the straw into her mouth. I don't know why that's a fun fact but on it IMDb. Does, it, that does sound like a tabloid's attempt right? to, like, titillate. Yeah, right? It's yeah. like, ooh, look at them filming sexy lesbian scenes and sharing straws. Like, it's like a weird, I don't, I don't know. It's a, It just totally felt like something that came out of a tabloid to me and was like, here you go. Here's Here it is. And I like, I, so I included it because I just thought it was kind of funny. Um, I, who knows? How, if it's, That, to me, sounds like just, yeah, who knows? I thought it was funny. Anyways, Katie, before we get to telling everybody where they can watch The Handmaiden, we wanted to mention that this was, in fact, a patron request from uh, one of our Academy Award-winning patrons, Ben Wilcox. Mm. 
Thank you, Ben, for recommending this one. Katie, where can people watch it? Well, as always, you can check with your local library. Um, the, I think this is maybe the kind of movie that might be a little harder to find, yeah. depending on where you are. Uh, I was not able to find it through our local public library, but I did find it through our local university library. Okay. Um, and now keep in mind, when we're talking about the library, at least I think if you're in the U.S., I don't know if other countries do this, you can ask your li your librarian about interlibrary loan, yeah, yeah, and they, they might be able to get it from another library. Um, or if you still have a local video rental store, you can check with them. Seems unlikely that it would Seems be there. Seems unlikely, but you never know, I Unlikely guess. that you'd have a store, but even more <laughs> unlikely that they would have it, but who knows. Um, barring all that, uh, in the U.S., you can watch it through Amazon Prime. Yep. Um, or you can rent it through Vudu for about $3. Yeah, and it, it seems to be in limited places because mm -hmm. it wasn't on YouTube, and mm -hmm. I didn't do a ton of searching, but initially you looked... And you only saw it on Vudu yeah. through some of the like street, like where to watch like websites that mm -hmm. you look at normally for this. But when I was Googling the movie today, looking up facts, I was like, the Prime link was like towards the top, and I clicked on it, and I was like, oh, it's on Prime, sweet. Um, so it may be other places, but those for sure, which a lot of people have Prime, um, so that that would be an easy place to watch it for at least some of them, some of our American audience, hopefully. But yeah, Vudu is also three bucks. There you go, Katie. I'm excited to check this one out. I think it's I, I've only I read the synopsis and it sounds really interesting. Mm -hmm. it, yeah, I actually didn't know like this. what kind of movie it was. But then I found out it's like a it's like a suspense thriller. Yeah, mystery. it's kind of a thriller like yeah. crime thing. Yeah, I didn't. I literally thought it was going to be like a horror, not a horror movie, but like a. I don't know what I thought it was going to mm -hmm. be just based on what I had heard. I had heard very little in terms of details. And the, I think what it is is that the picture because i had seen the cover mm -hmm. or the poster or whatever and to me the poster almost reads like a like a like a thriller horror film or something yeah, like the something poster about is it kind of ominous looking. yeah it looks ominous in a way that feels like it's gonna be like a parasite kind of deal yeah it's like kind of yeah. what i was expecting based on the poster but it doesn't sound like that's necessarily the case so I, i'm looking forward to seeing what what the deal is with this one and it's yeah, uh, by all accounts incredibly good so I'm excited. That's going to do it for this episode until one week's time when we're talking about The Handmaiden. Guys, gals, non-binary pals, and everybody else. Keep reading books. Keep watching movies. And, and keep, keep being, being awesome. awesome.